Hey everyone, and welcome to the Christ Family Church Podcast. We are so glad that you've made the decision to take time out of your day to join us virtually. Whether you're at home right now or listening on your way to work, we hope that you enjoyed this week's teaching from Pastor Zachary Fraley. And good morning and welcome everybody. Um, Let's get right into this. I would just encourage you to take a moment, close your eyes, just um, focus on Jesus, on his truth. Just breathe in and breathe out. Okay, you can open your eyes. Let's go. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, or 5 actually, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, hard topics, that hence is the breath before, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you, for though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that the little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened in Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Skipping over to chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor uh, will inherit the kingdom of God? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord up, who will also raise us by his power. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Cool, you can sit down. Obviously, there is a little bit of heaviness in the, in the scripture that we're reading today. And um, if I were probably a younger preacher, I would have just skipped over this and said, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 7, but um, I'm not young, you know. I I heard someone describe it as, you know, I grew up in the late 1900s, and um, yeah, I I grew up then, so um, I grew up in the late 1900s, and we're here today to tackle a difficult topic but one that is necessary for us to talk, talk about. It's sort of like when you go to Thanksgiving and, you know, there is that elephant in the room and everybody's just like, oh yeah, the turkey is great. And it's like, oh yeah, but we should really be talking about this thing. I feel like that's how it is sometimes in church. We need to get to the truth. So let's get to the message. Pornography, adultery, lying, cheating, stealing, murder, hate, anger, pride, divisiveness, greed, and sloth. Woo, we're getting into it, right? Just to name a few of the things that we have dealt with, we deal with, are going to deal with, or have been hurt by. Just a few things that we experience on the daily, not just from outside sources that are geared towards us, but actually from within our own hearts and our own selves, reminding us that at our core we are broken, reminding us that we are not there yet, and reminding us that 
we indeed are supremely inadequate, unable, and broken to our core, reminding us, in fact, that we are not good, and no matter how hard we try, how white-knuckled our fists get, we will never be good apart from God. You could read in today's passage and think about the man who is jacked up, right? You know, 1 Corinthians 5, we, we read it, and I don't know what his name was. In my just sermonizing, I thought of Bob. You know, I'm like, ah, oh, Bob, what's your problem? What is your issue? Wow, come on. You're doing all this stuff. But in the wise words of my friend Ron, he said, that guy's dead, died 2,000 years ago. I don't think the scripture is about him, but how does it pertain to us? The scripture we read today is not centric on one man who messed up, or really messed up, but really centered on what I would say the whole of mankind is, who sin, who are broken, and who are in need of a savior, you and me. The whole of mankind, and specifically what this verse talks about is those within the church who practice in but don't see it as such, those who need church discipline and everything within that. I don't know about you, but at times I get blinded. I don't know if you've ever gotten to that point where you think you are great and you're like, wow, I think I am there. We are wrongly confident. We feel like we have arrived, like we have been formed. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I I actually see some of you grimacing because you know that pride comes before a fall. As soon as I think that I am there and I'm like, wow, I am just great. I'm a wonderful follower of Jesus. The next thought is normally a realization of my own brokenness that plagues my soul so deeply that only the creator can fix it. A realization that I will never be made whole this side of eternity. A brokenness that seeks to drive me away from everything, but most of all, its supreme goal to drive you and me away from God. I don't know if you've been there. Um, Do you know what I'm talking about? When you realize again and again just how sinful and jacked up you are. Like David in the Psalms when he said, my sins, they are ever before me. It normally comes when we think of the majesty of Christ or the holiness of God, and we realize our own inability to even attempt to measure up to him. Paul spoke about it in Romans 3.23, and he said, For all have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone in this room, you, me, your neighbor, your child, your spouse, your pastor, your pastor's kids who are normally a little bit more jacked up than the other kids, uh, you know, I'll just be honest. Even though a child in my wife's womb right now, already fallen short of glory, born into the epidemic of sin that plagues us all, falling short and failing utterly. Now, uh, if you are listening to this, you're like, okay, Pastor Zachary, where's the good news in this? You know, normally there's a little bit of pep in your step. You know, uh, can we get to that? And yes, we're going to get there. But what I want you to think about is the ache in your soul first. The hurt in you that recognizes your inability to be good, your inability to be pure apart from God. The thing that normally breaks our heart and the realization that you and I are, in fact, sinful. We are not good at our core. We are not great people, but without Jesus Christ, we are broken. The realization that led to those who profess their faith um, today to the cross, realizing their need for Jesus. We had a foster daughter once, and she was five years old, and um, she had a moment where uh, she was, you know, we were getting her ready for bed and everything, and, um, and we actually, she uh, lied. So she was, in fact, broken and in need of saving, and Blair and I caught her in a lie one night, and her consequence was that night she had to go to bed without a bedtime story. 
man, you would have thought that we had like sentenced her to like a year in exile. She went, she ran to her room, was weeping, was like, no one loves me. I'll just go live outside. Yeah, I was like, you're not going to survive very long out there. Um, She ran to her room crying. And then after a while, I just listened outside of her door and I heard the most beautiful thing come out of her room in the form of a prayer. She said, dear God, she talked just like that. She said, why did I lie? Why was I bad? I don't want to be bad, God. I want to be good. I don't want to lie, God. Please help me. And this little five-year-old in her room had this just broken prayer. It was so beautiful. And I was like, man, she needs to grow up and be a theologian because Paul was into his 40s probably before he realized that himself. He actually penned it in Romans as well. He said... For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing that I don't want to do. Sounds like our five-year-old there. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, Paul says it there wonderfully, but I like the words of our little five-year-old better. Dear God, I don't want to be bad. I want to be good. She couldn't even understand why she lied about such a trivial thing. Paul there says, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want to do, and I do the very thing I hate. Paul's words there were clearly repeated from the lips of our sad five-year-old daughter when she realized that there in us is a desire to be good, but also an inability to be good. In each of us, there is a desire to do good and to be good and to be whole people. But really, at our core, there is an inability to do good apart from Christ. And that isn't how uh, it is with many of And that is how it is with many of us. We desire to be good and loving people. We want and desire to rejoice in uprightness, to be pure. We desire to be people of love who share Jesus' truth in our actions. And then we come to church and we're like, yes, Jesus paid it all. And we sing the wonderful songs. And then someone cuts us off as we are exiting onto Utica Ridge, right? And then suddenly our persona of I have reached it there, we're like, wow, I am more aware of my inability to, do, to be good ever Someone says something under their breath or your spouse does the one thing that you don't like, like when they say, you're just like your mother, right? Ooh, suddenly your inability to do good is before you more than ever before. Not like that doesn't happen in our marriage. Well, Blair doesn't say stuff like that. Uh, (laughs) I'm broken. But someone out there or someone really close to us, maybe they trigger us in such a way that we lose everything and our desire to be good and our inability to do good are made ever more real. After some self-reflection, maybe hurting someone that you love with harsh words, we think, maybe, God, why is this plaguing me? Why is this what I'm dealing with? Why am I broken to my core? Dear God, I want to be good, but I just can't. Sounds a lot like my five-year-old's prayer to God in her brokenness when she realized that she had a desire to be good, but at her core, an inability to do good. That there was a drivenness in her to pursue the wrong things. And no matter how hard the world tries to tell you that sin is okay, and that we are justified in doing whatever we want to do, follow your, do your, uh, do you do you, boo-boo, follow your own heart, it always catches up to us. And it always hurts us more and more. And the only escape to that is Jesus Christ and the freedom offered through his Holy Spirit. 
I think of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. I've met many men and women who followed the dogma and ethos of those days. You know what I mean? They went and they did whatever they wanted to do, and I have never, ever once heard any of them say they were so happy they followed their fleshly desires. They always largely regret the hedonistic lifestyle seeking after their own pleasure because you and I weren't made for sin. Paul talks about it. The body was not made for sin. It was made for God. Our bodies ourselves were not made for sin, but for union with God. Looking back to our section today, in uh, chapter 6, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived? Neither any of these, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, people who practice homosexuality, the thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, some of us in this room. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. A lot of people try and parse this. They try and skirt around the verses. They try and just skip around it and not talk about it because they don't like to talk about sin. We don't like, a lot of churches don't like to talk about our inability to do good apart from God, but it is the truth, and it is the truth that drives us and leads us into the fullness of Christ. Paul's words bring our attention back to what we see in our world today. The sin all around us. And it's not just a willful disobedience towards God. But actually what we see in our world is an attempted redefinition of what sin is. Because if some people can eliminate what sin is, if we can say that everyone is great, then we can eliminate the demarcation that someone is sinful and in need of Jesus, in need of repentance. We can eliminate the need for God at our core or even eliminate the belief that there is a God who desires for us to live whole lives in him. We see this attempt at it right now in our world, but more acutely aware of it, we are aware of the failure of this. The world is failing to pretend like sin isn't real, like there isn't a God who desires a wholeness for us. We can see this in the rise in mental health, in a mental illness, the suicidality, depression, and anxiety. If these people who have given over to their most sinful and greatest desires aren't fulfilled, could there be a reason? Could it be that you and I, just like what Paul says, we're not made for sin? That we weren't made to run in the opposite direction of God? And no matter how many medications and counselors we see, the only solution is Christ. I know that's bold for me to say, but it doesn't come from a guy that was a pastor who was raised in the church and never knew sin. It, was, it comes from me, a sinner, who followed after every whim until he realized that Jesus was the only cure. At its core, sin is the thing that divides us from God. At its core, the word sin means a missing of the mark, an inability to reach the standard that God has for us. So Romans 3.23, for all, uh, we cannot reach the glorious uh, standard that God has for us. But I believe the best descriptor for sin is not just the factual definition, but uh, one that comes closer to our heart. When we speak about God and our desire for each one of us, just saying that we miss the mark, it doesn't show us that the mark is there. Just saying, hey, you are not good enough, it doesn't lead us into repentance. Why does God desire for us to be without sin? And that's the root of it. God desires his best for us. God desires wholeness, fullness, a relationship, a health. God desires for all of our needs to be met in the garden, but just like in the garden, but there is sin. Simply put, Sin is the opposite of God's best for us. Sin and the world and what it offers is the opposite of what God has for us. It's direct opposition to what God desires for us, and it hurts us and others 
and it actually drives a wedge between us and God. And there's no way of getting around it. It it is hardwired into the existence of the earth just like gravity is. And you can get around gravity with helium or with an airplane or with a cool hot air balloon. But, you know, what goes up? Right? I can stand up here and I can defy gravity for like two quarters of a second and jump up as high as I can. But what goes up must come down. Gravity is always pulling. And in the same way, sin is always pulling at us the opposite of God's best. No matter how much you pretend that sin isn't there, its effects are always waiting. The effects of my father's sin, his uh, 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 alcohol addiction, it led to a broken family and trauma. The effect of my mother's sin, a drug addiction, it led to a a broken family, death, uh, and trauma as well. The greatest effect of sin, though, is the worst of them all. It's not just a momentary uh, effect, just like my life or my family was broken. It's not a temporal effect like divorce. But it's an eternal breaking of our relationship with God. Sin at its core divides us from our loving creator who desires to love and to know us. The first sin ever committed in Genesis with Adam and Eve, it led to God going, where are you? He he was disconnected from them. And now, as a result, we are plagued by the consequences of their decision. Not only in a broken world in need of a savior, but in your and my broken hearts seeking and searching for meaning and the relationship that we were created to be in. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that gnawing deep down in your soul for something more, a relationship with God? My first point is that sin divides us from God. And that's what Paul was so, why Paul was so strict in his letter. As we read this, we're like, whoa, Paul, why are you talking about those things? And we could skip over it, but that wouldn't be a preaching of the whole word of God, the whole text, which we are called to do. That's why Paul was so strict in his letter. Call out sin, don't celebrate it. Call it out, and hopefully it will lead to repentance, because God desires us to be in fullness of relationship with him. Looking back at verse 1 and 2 of of chapter 5, It's actually reported there is sexually immorality among among you. And the kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For man is his father's wife. Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn and be heartbroken? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In this, Paul seems shocked. (laughs) Not that there is sin, but that it is within the church and that they aren't doing anything about it. Right here, this is largely a focus on church discipline and how it is seen as godly to lead and love somebody into repentance. But which is another message for another day, but also uh, really relevant for our elders and deacons. However, I think the overarching message and theme of this is a bit different and applicable to our current situation in a different way. While this letter was written 2,000 years ago um, regarding a man that lived 2,000 years ago, the thing is that man is now deceased. His sin is now forgotten largely other than in our reading, which is actually one of the juiciest parts of 1 Corinthians. We can talk about it. We can gossip. We can sort of think about what was the prayer shawl ministry like? You know, is there crochet in there? Like, oh my goodness, did you hear about Bob? What is going on in his life? Ooh, look, we got a new little baby crochet blanket there. Oh, let's pray for him, you know? Um, We could talk about how that might have happened. It doesn't happen at our prayer shawl ministry like that. But what does this letter mean for us now? What does it mean for us 2,000 years ago? I believe the first thing that we can learn from this is in verses 6 and 7. Your boasting isn't good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So cleanse out your old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
So many times when I think of sin or when I talk with people and um, they ask this question, well, pastor, how far can I go? They ask this question over and over again. How far can I go? How far can I go without being swept up? How far can I go without it being sin? How far can I go? Can I flirt with this person over messages? I mean, that's not necessarily wrong, right, pastor? Maybe can I gossip a little bit? It wasn't gossiping. It was, it was just venting. That's not really bad because a lot of other people do stu- worse stuff than that. How can I go with this person that I'm not dating and that I know I should be waiting until marriage, but I mean, we're planning on getting married, so isn't that the same thing, right? How far can I go? It seems to be the question that the enemy uses in our lives and hearts and in the church in Corinth that they were dealing with. How far can we go? And Paul replies, not at all. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you realize that a little bit of yeast travels through the whole thing, that a little bit of sin travels through your whole life and divides us from our Heavenly Father? A little sin travels through the whole church. And the only answer is to remove it, to refuse it, and to reflect on Christ and his actions there. My second point in all of this is how far can I go? It shouldn't be the question that we ask. Instead, the question that we should be asking, is this bringing me into union with God or not? Is this bringing me closer to God or not? Is this separating me or bringing me into it, into a union with Christ? We don't really talk about maturity of faith that much, but I believe our approach to sin shows how mature we are in Christ. Do you think, possibly, how far can I go? Or do you think the deeper question, is this bringing me closer to God? Is this bringing me into union with Jesus or separating me? I believe the answer in totality is not whether or not sin is permissible, but whether or not it is beneficial. We need to stop thinking, can I get away with this? And start thinking, is this helping me to love Jesus and those around me? Is this helping Jesus to be seen in my life? Is this bringing me closer to God or further away from him? Because all the way back in the garden, that was the effect of sin. A division of relationship with God the Father. Driving a wedge between us And the God who created us to be in relationship with us. So much so that he gave his life on the cross. He gave his son for us so that we could be made right. So in our journey towards being formed in Jesus, we need to shift our questions. The words of Paul clearly reflect this. And remember, this is is about maturation in Christ. As we mature and are formed in him, we need to stop thinking, is this permissible? But instead, is this beneficial to my walk with Christ? Uh, Paul actually says it in 1 Corinthians 6, and I put in the amplified version to clarify a little bit. But he said, everything is permissible, allowable and lawful to me. Uh, But not all things are helpful, good for me to do, expedient and profitable when considered with other things. Everything is lawful to me, but I will not become a slave to anything or be brought under its power. This might seem hard to grasp. I actually remember when I first had become a Christian and I was reading through 1 Corinthians, I was like, what is going on in this verse? What is he saying? It may be a hard verse to grasp, but Paul is saying exactly what we've been talking about. Because grace and forgiveness, um, we can do whatever we want to do. We've been forgiven, but that doesn't mean that we should do that. Paul in Romans, he actually asked the question, so should we sin so that grace abounds even more? And he says, absolutely not. But as we mature in Christ, our thinking should change from permissible to beneficial. A child thinks, am I going to get in trouble for that? And as an adult, we think, yeah, am I going to get in trouble and go to jail for this? That's a good question to ask yourself. But then the spiritual question is, is this beneficial to my faith or not? Is this drawing me into deeper communion with God? 
but also thinking, why would I ever flirt with sin? Why, you know, uh, looking at a cliff, we all, what do we always do? We always go up to the edge as close as we can. Why would we do that with sin, something that is so detrimental to our faith? The big idea here, and the thing that I want you to walk away from today, is that sin divides us from God, but Jesus' love pulls us back. Sin, yes, it divides us from God, and it, it drives a wedge in between us, but Jesus' love pulls us back. When we go to the edge of sin, when we go to that cliff and we are flirting with it, Jesus' love is the thing that pulls us back. And it pulls us back from the destructive thinking of how far can I go? Because it's Jesus' love that pulls us back. Forgiveness that reminds us that who he is, um, he has spread sin as far from the east to the west for those of us who have confessed, repented, and chosen to follow after him. When we are at the edge of a cliff flirting with sin and wrongdoing, when we have hurt every relationship, even when we have ostracized ourselves in our sin and wrongdoings, when we've given into our fleshly desires instead of living into the heavenly call, Jesus is there, ready to pull us back into a relationship with him. For some of you, that may be where you are at today, and that may be why you are at church, because you've recognized the love of Christ pulling you back, desiring to pull you back from that cliff. And the mature believer goes from how far can I go without this being sin? Or even uh, the wrong thought of, well, I'm forgiven, so I can do it anyways, right? To thinking, is this bringing me closer to God or not? Is this bringing leaven into my life, sin into my life, brokenness into my life, as little as it may seem? Or is it bringing me into closer relationship with God? Saying, a saying that has always stuck with me is that sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. And that's the truth. In maturity, as you grow closer to God, we should be asking, not can I get away with this, but is this bringing me closer to God? And that's something that I had to learn. I wasn't necessarily raised in the church. I didn't come to church every weekend. We went sporadically when my mom uh, felt the need to or um, just because it was a societal norm back, you know, 33 years ago. Um, we were still within a church culture. Now we're in a post-church context. But I saw the detriment of sin unchecked in my life. I saw the detriment of sexual sin when my mother and I walked in on my father with another woman when I was five years old. I saw the hurt that that sin caused her, how, broke, how it broke their relationship and broke her. I saw the detriment of anger as the men my mother chased after physically abused my mother and I. I saw the detriment of envy when my father tried to kill my mother and I after we attempted to leave in the middle of the night. I saw the detriment of addiction when my mother would crush up Oxycontin cook it in a spoon, and inject it into her arm to be relieved. I said that I saw the detriment of this addiction when she overdosed and died when I was 13 years old. And I saw the hurt of sin much in my childhood, and even in my adult life, as I sought after anything that would heal the dirt, deep hurt in my soul, the ache within me, not only being fatherless, but also without a mother. And I gave into every sinful desire. I followed my sinful heart above all else. I probably would have gotten a letter directly from Paul. It wouldn't have been the letter to the first Corinthians. It would have been like, Zachary, you're jacked up. You know, I wouldn't have gotten a mention. It would have just been a whole letter. But I was left broken and hurting and aching. And that's why this message is so important to me. The message of following after Jesus with everything. Because I followed after what the world said. And I was left more broken than ever before. I was so confused. I had done everything the world had told me to do. I'd given into every sinful desire. I, I had identified with all the wrong things, and yet I was still aching and crying and in need of more. 
my friend eventually invited me to church, and it was there that Sunday that I had a peace beyond understanding that overtook me. It was there that I started to begin to heal from the gaping wounds in my heart. And it was there that I realized what it was like to follow Jesus, to be his disciple and apprentice, not to just say I was a Christian, but to follow after him with everything. It was at this church that they loved me just as I was, but loved me enough not to leave me that way. They loved me into the truth of Jesus, not shunning me, but caring for me as Jesus would. It was this church and this church that I began the process of not just saying I was a Christian, but living into it, turning away from sinful patterns and desires, growing into a disciple of Jesus. Third point that I want to bring out of this is that love brings us out of sin and into the truth. The love of Christ brings us out of sin and into the truth. It was the love of Jesus shown to me by the church, by my godly church family like this one here that led me to repentance and life change. And it is this family here today that is helping people move from a state of being separated from God to unity with him. It is this church here that is helping love people into the kingdom of God, not by affirming their sin, but by preaching the truth of Christ and seeing their lives change as they open the Bibles, as they join in family groups, as they serve, as they come to church week after week, as we call sin what it is and help them move into wholeness in Christ, help them live God's truth and grow as followers of Jesus. And it's my hope that we continue to do this. We continue to be this, continue to live into our calling because my hope and prayer is that we become a church that would have loved my mother into repentance, that we become a church who reaches the most lost, the most far gone, the ones who are in need, the ones who even other churches have given up on but are still in need of Jesus, that we continue to be the church that welcomes the sinners so that they can meet Christ and have their lives transformed by him, just like I had. Because I wish there had been a church that would have done that for my mother. I wish there had been a church who would have loved her out of the kingdom of sin into the kingdom of love, that would have led her, and, that, and if that would have happened, maybe she would be alive today. Maybe um, she would actually be in God's presence today instead of eternally separated from him. That's why we do what we do. Because outside of these four doors, the four walls, there are mothers, and there are fathers, and there are sisters, and there are brothers out there right now who are on a trajectory away from God. Not just here and now, but a trajectory away from him for eternity. And we are called to love them, to show them that love of Jesus that pulls them back from the cliff into the fullness of Christ. We are called to love them out of sin into the truth of Christ. And we are called to reach them even in their lowest and darkest points and love them into the kingdom of heaven. Called to reach into their darkness and pull them into the light of Christ. I'm standing here today as a pastor, but most importantly as a Christian, a follower of Christ, because a church loved me into the truth of Jesus and taught me not to flirt with sin but instead to flee from it. The last point that I have in this message is that we as the church need to flee from sin. Verse 18 in chapter 6 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits, it's outside the body, but sexual immoral a person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within? You, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I believe the only way that we can flee from sin is through the practice of confession. So, Pastor, cool, you've preached this whole message. I'm ready to change. What do we need to do? The practice of confession leads us into this. And I know that seems like an odd word. If you are from a Catholic background or even hyper-reformed, you don't like that word because the Roman Catholics, you know, have you come and uh, confess your sins. However, 
Confession is a core central part of our faith. There are verses that support it, but my favorite one is James 5.16, where Jesus' brother, he says, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. I'm not asking for you this week to come to a confessional. I'm not asking for you to meet me in my office or meet one of our staff. But in a moment of truth and clarity, would you just confess your sins to Jesus? Would you lay your sins and failures at his feet? Ask him to forgive you, to wipe you clean. If you've never done this, or even if you've done this a thousand times, I would encourage you this week. Take a moment in the morning or before you go to bed. Read through Psalm 51. It, is, it comes out of one of David's most broken points where he realizes his sin is ever before him, but that God is calling him out. I'm going to read it to you, and what I'd encourage you to do right now is just close your eyes in a moment and let this wash over you like a healing balm and salve to your heart. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you, that I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. And open your eyes, but this week, what I'd like to do is encourage you to take this sermon and not just have it go in one ear and out the other. This, wasn't a hard, this one was probably a hard one to listen to. It was more difficult to preach, I'd say. Uh, but, um, so pray for me. But also, this week, what I'd love for you to do is take what you've learned, take the exhortation and everything, and apply it to your life in the form of a practice. The practice that I would love for you to do is to practice the spiritual discipline of confession this week. You're praying through Psalm 57. If you need to come to somebody and to pray and to talk with them about it, I would love to meet with you. Our staff would love to talk with you. Um, but also, Jesus is the great intermediator uh, of our faith. The cool thing about Reformed faith is that we taught you didn't have to have a priest anymore to be the intermediary, but the Holy Spirit is right there ready to lead us into the truth of Christ. I would love for you to read Psalm 57 this week in the morning when you wake up, at night before you go to bed, but Allow the words of David there, the words of the Holy Spirit through him to prick your heart, to bring you into the fullness. Own up to your sins. Write them out if needed. Burn them or cross them out with permanent marker. I don't care. But know that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. Psalm 57, it says, Renew in me a loyal spirit, a right spirit, and restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's my prayer for you this week, that God would renew in you a right spirit and that he would renew that joy of salvation in you. Let's not be a church that celebrates sin, but together let's be a church that loves people out of it. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your life and for your love and for what you're doing here. Jesus, we pray that you would continue to lead your church as you see fit. Father, we surrender ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our desires, even those parts that push back and say no. I want to do whatever I want to do because you can give 99 things to you, Jesus, but the one thing we hold back is the one thing that truly is holding us back from you. So Jesus, help us to lay our sins at your feet, to know that they were taken for on the cross, that they were paid for by your blood, and Jesus, that we are welcomed into full communion with you. It's in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus that we pray. And we pray Jesus' words, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hey, again, we hope you enjoyed that teaching from Pastor Zachary and being a part of what God is doing here at Christ Family Church. If you'd like to come visit us in person sometime, we meet every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. If you'd like more information on our church, you can head over to ChristFamilyChurch.org. Once again, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great week.